With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener, check out mylifeinabook.com and use code Obscura at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code Obscura for 10% off today. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. Obscura is supported by Patreon and iTunes subscriptions. If you'd like to get access to our massive back catalog, then consider subscribing now. You can get access to bonus episodes, including stuff we literally can't play on the free podcast feed, every month. On iTunes, you get full access to the Black Label Society podcasts. This includes enough content to take up months of listening. If you only want access to Obscura, then head over to our Patreon. The website is patreon.com forward slash obscura crime podcast once there for the same cost of a cup of coffee you get access to hundreds of hours of content not available on the free feed 
Johnston County Sheriff calls it one of the worst cases of torture involving a child he's ever seen. It happened in a barn behind a house on Old Sanders Road east of Smithfield. Cheyenne Rodriguez joins us live now with the details. Cheyenne. Hi, Steve. Investigators are still here trying to process. They said this has been a very tough day for everyone involved. This is where police say or investigators say this man tortured this four-year-old child. They have arrested Jonathan Douglas Richardson. The sheriff says the four-year-old was staying with him, with Mr. Richardson, uh, for the last few weeks. He's a 21-year-old man who's accused of torturing this little girl over the last few days. The sheriff says the child's mother has been away for a few weeks and left the child with Richardson. Uh, they say that over the last few days, he has, in one way or another, have given her bite marks, lacerations, cuts all over her body, and he says there is evidence of sexual assault. Uh, the man was living in a barn behind his grandparents' house. The sheriff says the grandparents had no idea this was going on, but that is where this allegedly took place. The child was eventually airlifted to UNC, where she is in critical condition. When observing a courtroom, the jobs of prosecutors and defense attorneys may seem like the most challenging possible undertaking during a trial. For most cases, that's probably true. Judge Thomas Locke probably perceives things differently. Watching the middle-aged judge prepare for the sentencing of Jonathan Richardson is a scene which perfectly encompasses an old adage that, while cliché, is profoundly apt for the trial he was overseeing. It's a tough job, but someone has to do it. Indeed, someone did have to do it. There was no hope for justice in a case like this. That went out the window long before an arrest was ever made. Be that as it may, Richardson had to be held accountable for his crimes. Prior to his guilty verdict, Richardson also needed to be given the benefit of the doubt. Regardless of how heinous a crime, all defendants have the right to a fair trial. Few people would be capable of maintaining impartiality throughout a case like this. And that's why Judge Locke is remarkable. During Richardson's trial... Jurors, police officers, court officials, and family members alike were brought to tears, often needing to leave the room as the ruins of Tegan Skiba's unfathomable last days were put on display. Lawyers clinically refer to such ruins as evidence. It's a deceptive description of what was being presented to the court. At one point, attorneys argued over whether or not the jury should see photographs of what happens when a four-year-old child experiences something the devil wouldn't abide in the darkest caverns of hell. Lucky jurors. Someone had their best interests at heart. Judge Thomas Locke, on the other hand, wasn't afforded such consideration. No judge is. He also didn't get to leave the room in tears. Someone had to be the neutral, strong, silent type in the room, and he's the only one who could manage. No one would envy Judge Thomas Locke during Jonathan Richardson's murder trial. Just before Richardson is given his death sentence, Judge Locke's eyes reflect everything he's seen during the trial. And what he's seen is, in fact, everything. Every photo, every video, every bite mark, every welt, every piece of evidence. He's seen the glaring enormity of sadistic torture as inflicted upon a child. And moreover, he's seen the minutiae therein. Judge Locke never falters. He never gives way to emotion, though it's woefully obvious that emotion is swirling beneath his tough exterior. Even so, he maintains order over his courtroom, exuding a level of absolute control and authority that cannot be feigned. Most people don't like going to work, often with good reason, but rest assured, however difficult and infuriating a job may become, 
remarkably few of them will ever compare to the madness of presiding over that nightmare-inducing 2014 trial. In truth, it wasn't a tough job, or even the toughest. It was impossible. And yet, Judge Thomas Locke managed to complete that impossible task. Acknowledge and appreciate that one example of the human spirit and its triumph now, because in this story, perseverance is not a recurring theme. Unlike Jonathan Richardson's trial by jury, context is a privilege, not a right. In life, we generally have to take revelations as they come, however bizarre. We can demand clarification, but the universe isn't often inclined to oblige. Courtrooms try to extract that context, at least in theory. They do their best to put everything into perspective when the questions just feel too overwhelming to shrug off. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't. Jonathan Richardson's defense attorney attempted to put the murder of four-year-old Tegan Skiba into perspective. She presented to the Johnstonville Superior Court that Richardson was, himself, the victim of severe child abuse. That defense was an abysmal failure. For one, it was a flimsy argument at best. Truth be told, it was outright offensive to victims of child abuse, and possibly even insulting to lump most perpetrators in with Richardson. After torturing Tegan in a barn for ten days, Richardson took her to an emergency room where she later died. Her tiny body had withstood innumerable injuries, including clear signs of sexual trauma. This wasn't a case of a parent flying off the handle or losing control after a few drinks too many. In fact, Richardson wasn't Tegan's father. He was just her mother's boyfriend. This was the case of a predator seizing an opportunity. A predator taking things as far as possible before realizing he was about to get caught then panicking and trying to pad the rocky ground on which he was about to land. All instances of abuse are unacceptable, but one can draw a line from point A to point B and understand how such things happen in certain cases. Bad upbringings and sordid histories are shackles, but they can be broken with enough time and effort. Is there redemption for any child abuser? That question doesn't have a black or white answer. Few questions do. Some people think so, others disagree. It varies from case to case and person to person. The redemption of an abuser lies with a victim's forgiveness or lack thereof. It lies with the abuser's expression of remorse, their desire to change, and a willingness to accept accountability. More importantly, it lies with genuine sincerity and consistent, observable changes. Even that isn't always enough. In the end, there are trespasses one person can forgive, while another may be unable. Even more daunting for the regretful abuser is that some victims may be able to forgive their abusers, but simply choose not to, as is their right. The toughest part about redemption is that it must be willfully granted. No one is obligated to accept an apology. When a victim ends up dead at the hands of their abuser, that web of redemption becomes more entangled still. Forgiveness cannot be procured from a corpse. 
The best a murderer can hope for is secondhand grace, bestowed by friends and family of the deceased. It's a tough sell. Perhaps even more taboo than murder, especially in terms of seeking compassion from victims and their families, are instances involving sexual assault and rape. Such crimes bring about a particular indignation most aren't inclined to look past. Who could blame them? Moreover still, when the victim experiences multiple forms of physical abuse combined with rape and torture and is ultimately murdered, it seems absurd to even mutter the word redemption in the offender's general direction, especially when that victim is a small child. It seems likely most criminals in these cases wouldn't be concerned about remission anyway. As abusers travel further down the path of destruction, gray areas dim, and perpetrators move closer to that hard-to-find section of the world existing only in black and white. Tegan Skiba's murder had no gray area. For Richardson, condemnation was a given. He was sentenced to death in 2014. Wherever you stand on the death penalty, it's difficult to feel bad for Richardson. Killing someone as a means to deter further violence seems counterintuitive to opponents of capital punishment. They have a point. That said, even the most vehement anti-death penalty person can fall victim to visceral reactions. Believing murder to be immoral doesn't mean a person doesn't still feel the pull of murderous rage in their guts. It just means they're declining to act on that rage for the greater good. It may be true that no human should be able to decide when another life is ended, but that doesn't suggest a primal human yearning to extract revenge has somehow evaporated. Trading knee-jerk reactions for mindfulness and critical thinking is a crucial component of human evolution. Is it still wrong to commit premeditated murder against a remorseless child killer, even if it's state-sanctioned? Yes. But that doesn't mean Richardson's death sentence entitles him to even a modicum of sympathy. It just means more arbitrary violence in the future is now a certainty, and that shouldn't be anyone's goal. Someday that cycle must end, regardless of how satisfying it feels to retaliate. Jonathan Richardson's defense was that he himself was a victim of child abuse. His attorney claimed that he suffered from untreated mental illness, anger management problems, and addiction. This may be true, or it could be a complete fabrication. The truth of Richardson's past, in the case of Tegan Skiba's murder, is irrelevant. The jury had that same sentiment. Richardson's background may be a fine source of useful data for future studies on violent criminals. It may help identify those who have yet to act out or serve as some point of reference to draw conclusions, as yet undiscovered. It may even serve as interesting filler for a movie of the week or documentary. Excluding those potential uses for Richardson's assertions, his previous struggles are now of no concern. Perhaps he was the victim of an unimaginable childhood. If so, such a childhood never gave him a pass to perpetuate that cycle of violence. If anything, it should have served as a deterrent, but history tells us that just isn't how abuse works. Recurrently, victims themselves often become the very monsters who made them. It's a tragic fact that has become so ubiquitous in life, it's now a common theme in storytelling. Extending across all genres and mediums, from the best-selling and often critically lauded Hannibal novel series by Thomas Harris, to science fiction epics like Star Wars, and even cheeseball slasher movies like Silent Night, Deadly Night. This is a moral dilemma of indescribable complexity. Sure, these people did horrible things, but can you blame someone for abuse or trauma they suffered as children? For horrors they had no control over? Of course you can't. Victim blaming is both gruesome and an epidemic in the United States. But once a victim becomes the abuser, that's where their own tragedy becomes that of another. 
Regardless of one's upbringing, it's the responsibility of all victims to ensure they are the ones who break the cycle of abuse. Nothing positive comes from trauma, aside from a hope that, maybe, this will be where it ends. So while Richardson's childhood was indeed elaborated on at his trial, it's a waste of time to explore it. That long-winded tapestry of excuses was woven by a defense attorney and her defendant as an effort to reduce the accountability of an emotionless, sadistic murderer and rapist who didn't want to face repercussions for his actions. As previously stated, that effort failed, as well it should have. There's simply no rationality for a crime like this. The condition of Tegan Skiba upon her arrival to the emergency room in Smithfield, North Carolina was so horrifying, the doctor who examined her said he almost vomited. He'd been practicing for 25 years at the time. A nurse working at the hospital attacked Richardson and, according to her own testimony, jumped across a counter and tried to rip his throat out upon seeing Tegan. Another doctor who saw Tegan testified that he silently prayed for the child's death in hopes that she wouldn't have to live with those memories and injuries. When the condition of a child evokes those kinds of reactions from seasoned medical professionals, there is simply no amount of talking or blame-shifting that will yield any semblance of a rationalization. Jonathan Richardson gave it shot nevertheless. He apologized for torturing Tegan Skiba for ten days in a barn before ultimately killing her. He also said it was an accident and that he wanted to go to church. Church didn't want him. We have spoke with the doctors and the medical staff and they are just as uh, concerned and they cannot believe it either. The report that we've got, one of the worst cases that they have ever been involved with. Uh, you know, things like this shouldn't even occur at all. Helen Roxanne Reyes went away for Army Reserves training on July 6, 2010. At that time, she was living on the property of Richardson's grandmother, sharing a home with her daughter Tegan Skiba and her boyfriend Jonathan Richardson. Note the distinction that Helen was living on the property and not in the house with the grandmother. There's a significant difference. It was only a home in the sense that it was where the family was living day to day. This dwelling the three shared was in fact not a house, but a barn of sorts. Like most barns, this one lacked running water or a bathroom, although there was apparently power running to it, as it was air-conditioned, according to reports. There seems to be some disagreement on whether this was a barn or a shed, as the descriptor changes back and forth from one news outlet to another. Police reports refer to it as an outbuilding. Why the family was living in that outbuilding is unclear, though it seems likely money could have been a contributing factor. News reports vaguely point to a falling out between Reyes and her parents, which prompted Reyes to vacate the Skiba home and move into the barn behind Richardson's grandmother's house. Detective James R. Garrell of the Johnston County Sheriff's Office described the appearance of the outbuilding in his report from July 16, 2010. The residential outbuilding is best described as an unpainted, wood-framed, small, single-story structure, approximately 20 foot by 20 foot in size. The outbuilding is located directly behind the main residence of 750 Old Sanders Road, Smithfield, North Carolina. The structure has a burgundy door with a white storm door attached. The structure also has windows on each side of the door with a lean-to type shelter protruding from each side of the building. The building has a tin roof silver in color and has two windows at the rear of the building. This outbuilding is the residence of Jonathan Douglas Richardson, Helen Reyes, and Tegan Skiba. Richardson volunteered to look after Tegan while Reyes attended army training telling her his grandmother would help babysit while he was at work. Obscura is brought to you by True Crime Society Podcast. Ever wish your friends were as into true crime as you are? 
Stephanie and Olivia from the popular True Crime Society social media accounts are ready to tap in as your true crime besties to guide you through the latest cases taking the internet by storm. Listen in as they break down timelines and go over the most popular and sometimes ridiculous case theories. The True Crime Society podcast covers everything true crime, from missing people and cold cases to the latest breaking news. Hosts Olivia and Stephanie bonded over their interest in true crime and created an online community of over 200,000 crime enthusiasts who demanded a podcast. Olivia is based in Sydney, and Stephanie is in New York, which offers unique global perspectives. Listeners say the podcast reminds them of chatting with their friends about whatever the latest case is. Episodes are well-researched, with just the right amount of banter and never feel too heavy. New episodes release every Thursday and are available on your favorite podcast app right now. Be sure to search for and subscribe to the True Crime Society podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery. One that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries... June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Reyes's decision to allow Richardson to look after her four-year-old daughter can be taken two ways. On one hand, army training isn't exactly the kind of thing someone can just get out of. Generally speaking, people in the military can't just call in sick. Missing an order to attend training can carry serious legal ramifications. Childcare in America isn't usually free, and judging by the living conditions of Reyes and her daughter, it seems like money was an issue in their lives. Financially comfortable people don't live in outbuildings, so it's easy to see why she left her daughter in the care of someone who may well have been the only person volunteering to help. Another way to look at Reyes's decision is to consider the fact that that she was well aware of Jonathan Richardson's capacity for violence. Many feel that by leaving her daughter with Richardson, she was guilty of criminal negligence. Richardson wasn't a quiet, unassuming murderer people were shocked to find out was capable of such atrocities. He was demonstrative enough in his sadistic tendencies that most parents would have probably declined to trust him with young children. Richardson was charged with injury to property in October of 2007. Then the following month was charged with burning an unoccupied building and communicating threats. There were definite signs that Richardson wasn't the go-to guy for someone in need of a babysitter. 
What makes things all the more tragic is that he'd not only physically assaulted Tegan Skiba prior to July 6th, but also that Helen Reyes was aware of the incidents. It happened on at least three separate occasions prior to Tegan's death. Reyes said she once left Tegan with Richardson, went to Walmart, and returned to find the girl with a cut on her head. Richardson said she accidentally hit the corner of a stationary bicycle. Another time, Tegan's eye was hurt during a trip to the beach. He told me there was a wave that came and ended up hitting her eye, said Reyes, who now works in a medical office and has an eight-month-old girl. Reyes also testified that she returned home once to find welts on Tegan. I went inside and grabbed her and held her and told her that I loved her, Reyes said, crying. He told me that he had whipped her for throwing up on his chair. He had whipped her with a power cord. She said she was outraged and told Richardson never to touch Tegan again. The couple's tumultuous relationship continued, and Richardson tried to call it off several months before Tegan's death. In court, Reyes read aloud part of a love letter she had written to Richardson at the time. If I tell you I love you too much, then tell me, and I'll tone it down. You have shown me what it means to be truly loved and treated well. When asked why she stayed, she said, He was stern with her at times, but he showed that he loved and cared for her. Reyes said she left Tegan with Richardson during her training because he volunteered to take care of the child, saying that his grandmother would help while he was at work. I trusted him, and I trusted his word, Reyes said. Tegan said she really liked him and that she wanted him to be her dad. Numerous eyewitnesses during Richardson's trial spoke of his temper and his tendencies to dominate people he perceived as weaker than himself. Was Helen Reyes stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place? Probably. But whatever the alternative was, even further financial struggles and legal ramifications from the United States Army, leaving her child with a known abuser, wasn't the lesser evil. Reyes was later charged by the Johnstonville Country Sheriff's Department with child negligence, following the death of her daughter. On July 16th, Richardson brought Tegan Skiba to the emergency room at Johnston Medical Center, claiming she had hit her head after falling off a bed. This was an attempt to explain away the condition of the child that was far less than insufficient. Tegan Skiba was nearly brain dead, barely responsive and covered in human bite marks. In some instances, her skin had been ripped away completely by Richardson's teeth. Richardson had also beaten her repeatedly using an extension cord with exposed ends. Welts from the whippings were all over her body. She also had a number of bruises and had endured notable trauma to her genitals and anal area leading the state of North Carolina to later convict Richardson for sexual crimes involving a child. Richardson had tortured and raped Tegan Skiba in the outbuilding for 10 days, videotaping certain instances which were later presented to the court. In one of the videos, Tegan begs Richardson not to hurt her anymore. Richardson told authorities that the child had urinated and defecated on him while they were in bed together. It was at this point that he just lost it and began beating the child mercilessly. In the video presented at Richardson's trial, Tegan pleads with Richardson, promising she will tell someone if she needs to go to the bathroom from now on. Richardson yells at her to speak up. Richardson later hit Tegan over the head with a piece of wood, which prompted him to take her to the emergency room, fearing she wouldn't survive the injury. After arriving to the emergency room, Tegan was transported to UNC's intensive care unit for children. ABC News reported on the reaction of the doctor Keith Kosis, who described Tegan's appearance and his reaction to it in court. A pediatric doctor testifying in the murder trial of Jonathan Richardson on Friday told the courtroom he nearly vomited 
when he saw four-year-old Tegan Skiba. Dr. Keith Kosis, who specializes in critically ill children, was the attending physician at UNC's intensive care unit for children when the four-year-old Johnston County girl was brought to the hospital in July 2010. Startling is not the right word. Certainly deeply disturbing is again not how I truly felt. It was a very visceral response like I was going to vomit, said Kosius. The then 21-year-old Richardson had originally taken Skiba to Johnston Medical Center. She was later transferred to UNC, claiming the girl had fallen off the bed. However, doctors found she had cuts, bruises, a head wound, and bite marks on her body. Skiba died days later from her injuries. On Friday, Kosius said he had never seen injuries like that on any child in his 25 years as a doctor. We saw this small, frail girl who you know from her status she was pale. She was poorly perfused in shock. Those parts don't portray how beaten this child was when I had a first look at her, Kosius said. These scars, these whip marks, these injuries to her skin that were all over her body. I mean, there was essentially no part of her body that was spared. His testimony got pretty graphic at times when he began to detail the extent of the girl's injuries. At one point, the jury was asked to leave the room while the prosecutor went over some evidence with the doctor and discussed showing the jury video and photos of the injuries. Kosius said Skiba could have been violently shaken because she had brain injuries similar to other cases. He said he was only able to tell she had brain function by poking a needle in her foot. He said her foot responded little and that the girl had very little brain function. We knew that there was a significant intracranial brain injury, bleeding in the brain on the left side, and it was so severe and impacting the brain it was swelling, said Kosius. The doctor testified that Skiba was one step away from being brain dead. Her basic, very basic functions of the brain, what we call the brainstem functions that keep you alive, were deranged and failing, he explained. He also said the girl had a lot of acid in her blood from possibly poor circulation of air, and that Skiba was barely hanging on when she arrived to UNC. After obtaining a search warrant for the outbuilding signed by Judge Thomas Locke, authorities seized items from the building that included rope, duct tape, underwear which was covered in blood, a condom wrapper, guns and ammunition, drug paraphernalia, and the extension cord used on Tegan. Richardson's teeth were also molded to show proof that he had been the source of Tegan's 66 bite marks. Tegan held on in the hospital for three days before passing away on July 19, 2010. And Jonathan Douglas Richardson is in jail right now on a $1 million bond. They're still processing the scene, still investigating, but everyone involved basically says this is the worst case that they have ever seen. Bite marks, lacerations, the signs of sexual assault all over this four-year-old child's body. She is in critical condition. Following Richardson's arrest, one of the more disturbing revelations was a phone call he'd made to Helen Reyes, which was videotaped. In the video, Richardson tells Helen that he loved Tegan to death. Defense attorneys attempted to use the video as evidence of Richardson's mental state at the trial, but Judge Locke did not allow it, according to ABC News. Defense attorneys for Jonathan Richardson attempted Wednesday to use a video of the 25-year-old to help show his mental state at the time of his arrest nearly four years ago in the murder case of Tegan Skiba. But Superior Court Judge Thomas Locke refused to admit it into evidence for jurors, who spent the last 17 days of testimony hearing about the four-year-old's injuries and how prosecutors say Richardson tormented, tortured, and terrorized the girl. 
His attorneys say Tegan's death was not intentional, but was partly the result of undiagnosed mental problems and physical abuse Richardson suffered as a child. The July 16, 2010 video, played outside the presence of the jury, was taken in an interrogation room at the Johnston County Sheriff's Office after Richardson was taken into custody. It was the same day he took the child, unconscious and near death, to a local emergency room. In the video, a tearful Richardson is on his cell phone talking to Tegan's mother and his girlfriend of six months, Helen Reyes, about how much he adored the child. I wanted to have kids with you when you got home because I loved being around her so much, Richardson cries. I loved her to death, Helen. I do, and I would never intentionally hurt her. He goes on to say he wanted to raise a family and be a good father to Tegan. She's never had a father, and the way she's warmed up to me, she loves me so much, he said. Richardson continues, saying he popped Tegan on the leg for misbehaving and was surprised when detectives told him she had broken bones. Richardson, in the video, also talks about needing help. You know my mind is messed up, don't you? He asked Reyes. You even said... Sobbing, he tells Reyes that it was all an accident. Helen, I just want to tell you that I didn't mean to do it and I didn't hurt her head, he said. But Locke ruled the phone conversation was hearsay because the full conversation between Richardson and Reyes couldn't be heard. Jurors ended up not seeing the video. Despite being charged with child negligence, Helen Reyes appeared at Richardson's trial to testify against him of her own volition, not as part of a plea deal. Helen Reyes breathed heavily and dabbed her eyes as she took the stand, then broke down in tears when Prosecutor Greg Butler asked why she was in court. I am here for Tegan, for my baby, for justice, she said. Prosecutors say Reyes went to New Mexico for Army Reserve training in July 2010 and left her daughter, Tegan Skiba, in the care of Jonathan Douglas Richardson. Reyes is charged with felony negligent child abuse. She said Thursday she was not testifying as part of a plea deal. She described her relationship with Tegan's father, Jerry Skiba, whom she met at an Applebee's in 2005. After Tegan was born, Reyes said, Jerry Skiba became violent, and the two split. She said she was single until she met Richardson. I cared about him, Reyes said. I felt I was in love with him, or falling in love with him. There seemed to be two versions of Richardson, the loving and caring man that Reyes was falling in love with, and the stoic murderer who reveled in the degradation of his victims. Prior to sentencing, Richardson was kept at the Johnstonville County Jail, where authorities found a shank in his cell made from a toothbrush and nail file. He was also accused by guards of throwing urine and feces at staff and of threatening to kill other inmates. Judge Thomas Locke ordered that Richardson be put in shackles following the incidents. Refuting Richardson's defense was Sandy Penny, a longtime girlfriend of Richardson's father, who told the court that allegations of abuse were fabricated. When asked if Doe Richardson has been a good father to Jonathan, she replied yes, stating, He did spank him, but I can tell you, I can count on one hand how many times he spanked him. I mean, we all get angry and raise our voice, but he is not an angry man. He's a very loving, fun man. He was a good dad, and they had a good father-son relationship. Jonathan had a good home. He had the best of both worlds. He had his mom every other weekend, he had his dad every day, and the other weekends, they went fishing all the time. Even in the absence of Penny's contradiction, Richardson's defense would have been, at best, a shot in the dark. It was the only leg his attorneys had to stand on. When it was refuted by someone close to Richardson, that leg was ostensibly swept. In closing arguments, Richardson's defense attorney Mike Klinkosum said to the jury, 
We're not asking you to forgive Mr. Richardson for what he did. Life in prison without parole is not forgiveness. It is its own abyss, a life condemned to prison for someone convicted of a sexual assault and torturous murder of a four-year-old girl is a special kind of abyss. It's a special kind of hell. Prosecutors also made closing statements and instructed the jury not to take pity on Richardson and asserted that death was the only fitting punishment for Richardson. Assistant District Attorney Greg Butler stated, He wants you to feel sad. He wants you to be concerned for him and his self-described horrible life. He wants you to have sympathy for him and forget this terrible, senseless, needless, vicious crime that he committed against a little four-year-old girl, Tegan Skiba. All this is just to get your attention taken away from what he did, how he did it, and who he did it to, and why. Johnston County District Attorney Susan Doyle also spoke to jurors. She was a tough little girl, but as tough as Tegan Skiba was, she was no match for that defendant. She was no match for his persistent and his calculated and his carefully planned acts of torture. As she began her slow, torturous death, she was in this dark, dirty, lonely place. She was in a shed all alone, and she had no one, no one, with her. She had no one to help her. She had no one to care for her, and she had no one to comfort her. She had no one but him. Your sentence will finally bring justice for Tegan, and your sentence will allow her family to begin to put away some of this pain and to once again remember the sweet little girl who in happier times loved to say, it's a sunny day, let's play. As a death sentence was handed down, Richardson's face remained emotionless, as it did throughout most of the trial. Jonathan Richardson and is currently on death row in Raleigh, North Carolina. Gerald and Sarah Skiba, Tegan's grandparents, were at the sentencing and felt death was the appropriate punishment. Gerald Skiba's only point of contention was that the deed should be carried out sooner, rather than later. The way I see it, he got the verdict today. He should be dead tomorrow. He tortured my little granddaughter and she's never coming back again. Jonathan Richardson is to blame for what he did to Tegan Skiba. No one, not even his defense attorneys, refute that. While prior abuse certainly could have helped facilitate his sadistic tendencies as an adult, it fails to mitigate such an atrocity. Helen Reyes exhibited remarkably poor judgment in leaving her child alone with someone she knew to be abusive, however difficult her situation may have been. That said, the state of North Carolina may have convicted the person who murdered Tegan Skiba, but it also helped facilitate her situation. Single mothers are left to fend for themselves when it comes to childcare. It should be noted that most parents find manageable solutions in that department. It should also be noted that apathy toward childcare in North Carolina and all over the United States helps facilitate dangerous situations for children, as overworked or inattentive parents often resort to whatever means of supervision they can find for their children. We are failing to protect our children, and sometimes it seems like no one cares.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.